And if you guys have been following along attentively, you guys know I've actually skipped two chapters. We skipped chapter 15 and 16. And the reason for this is because 15 and 16, if I were to sum it up in a nutshell, it's just a list of kings of both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And with the exception of one king, uh, King Asa of the southern, uh, southern kingdom, all the other kings did evil in the, eye, in the eyes of God. And nothing really stands out about the kings that uh, are listed here uh, from um, Rehoboam and Jeroboam to Ahab, the, the, the king that we will actually be uh, focusing on in chapter 17, other than the fact that they did, again, evil in the eyes of God. So if you, on your own time, yeah, please read it. And, um, but again, I think it would, just be, it would have been very repetitive, understanding that the heart of man is, is uh, totally depraved. And so we, we now uh, put our breaks at chapter 17. And this chapter is, uh, I think, of, is going to be very memorable to us. is because this is where the prophet Elijah is introduced to us. There's no buildup. He just suddenly appears. There is no recount of his childhood or his preparation to be a prophet. He just jumps into the scene. And we're going to see the very reason why God raises up a prophet um, and why it was so needed in this particular time and why during the reign of King Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And just to give you just a backdrop, what is going on right now? King Ahab has just become king, and um, he actually was engaged in a marriage alliance with a Tyrian nation um, by his father Omri. Okay, so the previous king, King Omri of Israel, arranged a marriage with his son Ahab and the king of Tyre, whose his daughter would be. Queen Jezebel. And what was the reason for this marriage? Like many of the marriages that were taking place during this time for socioeconomical reasons. And the, the, the interesting thing about Queen Jezebel and her nation was that they did not worship Yahweh. She's not... Jewish at all. She is Phoenician. And if we know anything about the Phoenician religion, they worshipped a couple of different gods, but the chief god being Baal. Now, Baal was worshipped not only in the Phoenician region, but also among the Canaanite people. So Baal was actually outside of Israel, a very popular god. Now, Baal, as we know by historians, was a storm god. 
This was what he was the god of. So very similar, similar to Thor. Okay, so he, because he was a storm god, he was in charge of the rain. So you can see why Baal was so important to a people who re really relied on agriculture. Okay? Without rain, their, their own livelihood would be jeopardized. And so Baal was a very important god, chief god for both the Canaanites and the Phoenicians. And when, when the marriage took place between Ahab and Jezebel, she brought Baalism into Israel. And what we will see, we're going to get into her, her personality, into her character, very strong woman, uh, as we uh, get into 1 Kings. But she, did not, she was not content with, uh, with having Israel accept her worship of Baal. She wanted to actually replace Yahwism. She wanted to replace the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. She wanted Baal to be the actual national religion. And so we can see why in the midst of all this threat of the nation of Israel who had a string of horrible, horrible kings and now not being able to even grow up hearing about Yahweh, we can see why it was so crucial for God to raise up a man like Elijah during this time. Now, interesting uh, fact about Baal. Baal worshippers believe that Baal dies every year. Okay. There's a period where actually Baal dies. Okay. There's a war that takes place between him and the death god, Mot. And Mot overcomes him. And, and uh, Baal dies. And because he dies, there's a season of no rain. And this is how they explain their summer season. So how does he become resurrected? It is either uh, one of two goddesses. And I have heard both from various commenta uh, commentaries and historians. There's one, Anat, the goddess of war. Or we've heard Ashereth. Ashereth, the female counterpart to Baal, she's the goddess of fertility. And it is one of these two goddesses, depending on who you actually read, who resurrects Baal. And so there is a death and resurrection motif in, in even Baalism. Okay. And so now Elijah comes into the scene. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, that's verse 1, says, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom be whom before I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Stop right there. It's quite interesting. Okay? So now, we're getting introduction to, to Baal, Baalism, the god of the storm, who is in charge of the rain. And what is the judgment on Israel? through the prophet Elijah, is drought. And God has a habit of doing this. 
any God that comes in to, to take his place of worship among his people, he is going to go directly to that God. And if you guys know anything about the, the plagues in Egypt, each plague was in a direct opposition to a particular God of Egypt. It wasn't random. So God challenging the Phoenician God of the storm. And then we go to verse 2, and the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the crook, brook Sharif, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Sherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, what is very interesting about this particular passage is that God raised up Elijah to be his mouthpiece. And so here Elijah is speaking words of judgment to the king of Israel. Now, who does this? Who is bold enough to condemn a king? Your life is on the balance. You have to be very careful with the words that you speak to the king. But here we have a man of God telling the king that there will be a drought. Drought which is in response to Ahab's sin and bringing in Baalism to, to Israel. And then we have something quite interesting where God tells him to hide. Here we have God telling Elijah to be bold, to stand up against the king. Elijah didn't appear to be fearing his, for his life. But then the next command of God after uh, speaking to the king is to hide. Now why would God do this? Why would God, out of all people, tell his representative to hide? And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But Elijah, of course, being the man of God that he is, obeys the word of the Lord, goes to exactly where God commanded him to go. And in hiding, he was fed food supernaturally by the birds of the air. And it's quite interesting that it was the ravens that actually fed Elijah the, the bread and the meat because in the Torah, the, the raven is actually considered an unclean animal. So why God would choose a raven, an unclean animal, to feed Elijah is something of a mystery. But he survives in the midst of the drought through heavenly means. And I think that point is very crucial. 
When we think about Elijah, Elijah is a big, big figure. He's a famous patriarch, biblical patriarch. We all know who Elijah is. We all grew up hearing about the story of Elijah defeating the Baal worshippers. We know that Elijah was one of two people in Scripture who did not face death on this earth and rode up to heaven on a chariot. He's even, he's even crossed over, over the Testaments, and we see him in the Gospels. People wondering if Jesus Christ, our Messiah, was in fact the resurrected Elijah. And even during Jesus' transfiguration, who was there but Moses and Elijah? Elijah representing the prophets, the chief of the prophets. But when we share stories about Elijah, I don't think many recall the time where he was in hiding and he had to be fed supernaturally by God. I, as I mentioned before, I really believe that this is deliberate, that this is actually the first story of Elijah that is mentioned. It is not his great miracles that we're going to see later on. Is that he is actually an utter dependence on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so... It says, after a while, the brook dried up. There was no rain in the land. So what the Lord said would happen, it indeed came to fruition. There was indeed a drought in the land. And it was a drought that even affected Elijah. Like God could have easily gave Elijah unlimited source of water. Because God can do anything. I mean, after all, didn't he send food via ravens? So why not give him unlimited supply of water while everyone else is searching for water? And it, it, is, it, it appears that God had a different plan for Elijah. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. So where does God ask Elijah to go? Zarephath. And you look Zarephath in the map, and you will see it is in Jezebel's hometown. It is smack dab in the middle of Phoenician territory. So God tells Elijah, because of the drought, to go to enemy territory. He is not to dwell in Israel. He is to go up north to Phoenicia, entire. But why does he go there? Because he is going to cross paths with a Phoenician woman. Who we, who we know is a widow. And it says, uh, if we continue on verse 9, Behold, I have commanded a widow, widow there to 
feed you. Now, this is very, very interesting. And maybe this is why Elijah was fed by unclean animals. You guys remember in the book of Acts when God was calling Peter to now be the, the pioneer of evangelism. He had the vision in his rooftop about these unclean animals. And what did God command Peter to do? He said to go eat them. And we know what that symbolized. That the gospel would now be preached not just to the Jews but to the Gentile world whom the Jews viewed as unclean. So even uh, evangelism, okay, going beyond the borders of, of the Jewish nation took place in the Old Testament. That a Phoenician woman would interact with the God of Israel. And so he meets, the, he meets the widow. And what does he say? He says, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And then verse 11. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for, for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Listen to what the widow just said. She was preparing her last meal. The drought ravaged the land so greatly that there was not enough food for, for her to sustain the, her, herself and her son. So when Elijah asked for bread, he said, no, sir, the bread that I'm actually going to make is going to be the last meal for myself and my son. She planned to die. And I wonder if many of us relate to this widow. Where we don't have, we don't see hope when we envision the future. Maybe there's obstacles in our way that we see are just too great for us to overcome. And it, it just seems that death is the easy way out. Now, many of us may not be suicidal, dealing with great depression to the point of death, but I think that many of us can relate with the feeling of having no hope. Like that is a foreign concept to many of us. This is what the woman felt. This became her companion. Hopelessness. And when someone loses hope, after a certain point, they have no reason to live. Because hope is what keeps the human body continuing on. 
she was ready to die. And I want you to think about it. The drop broke her so much that that was the only option. Being a parent myself, if I was in this situation, I would probably travel miles on end to find if there's any way that I could keep my son alive. I would do anything. I don't care if I die, but as long as I know my son lives, then whatever I go through is worth it. She doesn't get up and walk away. She just, she just decided, okay, there is no hope. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. The son that she loved, that she brought into this world, she says, you know, even as a mother, I cannot keep him alive. Maybe many of us have been beaten up by life so bad. We've come to just listen to the lies of the enemy. Yeah, maybe there is no hope. Maybe I am meant to be here in the state of constant hopelessness. But then this woman meets Elijah. And he gives her a word. Elijah said to her in verse 13, do not fear and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. I love who Elijah is going to attribute this miracle to. He says, this thus says the Lord, God of Israel. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm giving you a message from God. Not the God that your people worship, but my God, the one true God. The God of Israel. And this is what he says. You will have enough to feed yourself and your son. You will, in essence, have life. He will sustain you until the drought is over. What wonderful news. And I think this is news that we seldom listen to. So loud and many are the voices of the world that tell us that there is no hope. There, that there is nothing better for us. And whatever downtrodden state that we're in, that it, is, it will be there for the rest of our lives. But God has a different message. He will sustain you. God can and will do the impossible. 
to sustain those he loves, to provide for his children. Elijah couldn't do this, but it was God of Israel. And it says that she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for, says, many days. How good is the Lord. When she was facing death, God brought her back to life. As I mentioned before, this message I think seems a little too far-fetched even for those sitting in the church. God can't do this. God doesn't know my problems. God doesn't know my issues. Well, let me ask you, what is too hard for God? What is too hard? Now, here's the thing, guys. When I talk about the provisions of God, I am not talking about endless amount of money in your bank account. I'm not talking about God taking you from from being a, a poor person to a rich person. What I am talking about is him providing in the way that you need. And to me, I believe it is in the realm of the spiritual. John 4, 13, 14. Remember when Jesus Christ confronted the Samaritan woman in the well. He said this to her. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, the water from the well, will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, Right off the bat, we see God does provide. And the greatest gift of provision that God has given us is eternal life found in Christ Jesus. And if we drink from him, we have eternal life. But I also think that God was able to provide for the widow because Elijah knew firsthand God's ability to provide. He was in a very similar situation as the widow. So when we look just at people, just look around you, we're all on the same boat, rich, poor, We're all on the same boat. We are all dependent on God.
What can we be thankful for besides salvation? You know what? The very breath in your lungs is a gift from God. God is providing for you another breath so you can live on this earth. How about the very fact that you are here in the United States and not in the slums of India? That you don't have to worry about getting access to clean water. That it doesn't even cross your mind. And that if you get hungry, you can just drive five minutes to a fast food restaurant. All these little things, God's gift to us, God's provisions for us. We have a lot of things to be thankful for. Oh yes, it is the, it is the, it is when calamity and tragedy happens in our lives that it offsets everything. This is why we have to look to God. Now it says in verse 17 that sometime later, sometime later, Elijah stayed with the widow and the son. And we know that he stayed in the upper room. He stayed in the, the roof of the widow, the widow's house. And not sure why God led Elijah to stay there. But it said for some time. And it says that the son grew extremely ill. And he grew extremely ill to the point that his breath left him. And so we can infer that the boy died. Now, I want to ask you guys, what do you think would have been the reaction of the mother? The reaction of the widow. She has a, a man of God, who, who she calls the man of God, living in her house. She has access to this man of God who speaks directly to the one true God. And she has witnessed the great miracle of unlimited supply of food. What would be her reaction? I would think that she would run to Elijah and plead with him to, to talk to the Lord. In faith, she would say, please, Save my son. But I want you to see what she says. She says in verse 18, What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? Instead of pleading to the man of God, Elijah, she actually points fingers at him, gets angry. And again, I, I feel we can relate very well with her. Maybe many of us who have been in the church for some time, who have seen God do wondrous things, but once that moment 
hits us. That moment of calamity. Everything that we've worked on, everything that we've done to build up our faith, it just seems it just crumbled. And we feel that the best thing that we could do is shake our fist at God. It seems like the most sensible thing to do. To look to God and say, why? She told Elijah, why did you come here? Did you come to judge me of my past sins? Is this why you're here? God is a a vengeful God and is repaying me for all the, the bad things I have done? Is he angry with me? A lot of people that I have talked to in my years of ministry feel somewhat similar to how this widow is feeling right now. It doesn't matter how many years they've been in the church. A new freshman Christian to a veteran. Just life does not make sense. And it seemed that whatever faith they had wasn't strong enough to to overcome whatever they were struggling with. Anger, frustration, it's the only reasonable reaction. What happens next? I I love this. As we know, you read the end of the chapter. Elijah brings the son back to life. So Jesus Christ was not the only resurrected person. And we know he wasn't the only one who resurrected someone else. Elijah resurrects. And we also know Paul resurrect someone in the book of Acts. But in the midst of her faithlessness and her anger and frustration at not only Elijah, but in essence the man, uh, the God that he is representing, we see, we see Grace. Her son is brought back to life nonetheless. In the midst of her faithlessness, you are experiencing something in your life. And you recognize it is your darkest hour. And you have befriended hopelessness. I want you guys to remember this one thing, that the Lord your God is always there with you, is always there walking alongside you. You may lose faith, but God is constant. He will never lose faith. And he will 
demonstrate to you what kind of God that he is. And how the chapter ends, the woman said to Elijah, Oh, now I know that you are a man of God, as if she did not know that before. You know what, sometimes, as believers in Jesus Christ, it may take couple incidents for us to actually get our heads straight and to recognize the God that we serve. And also, it may take even something as drastic as this to bring someone to open their eyes to see who God truly is. So the phenomenon of raising a dead person back to life, we see spiritual implications here. This is what was actually happening to the widow being brought to life. And I believe it was here that she fully trusted the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So a couple things here. Yes, indeed, God provides. But two, if you have everything, or you feel like you have everything, you will not see God's provisions in your life. It is only when you are empty that God can begin to fill. Only when you are in a low place will you be lifted up, will you be raised up. Only when you are humbled and broken can God mend you back together. So you may not know it now, but your, your, your times of darkness, the storms in your life, may be the greatest thing that has ever happened to you. Of course, you won't see it then. But it is then, and only then, you will see the hand of God working. I want us to, to not limit God to what he can do. There is no problem too big for our Lord. And I have talked to too many people to know that not everyone is in a state of sunshine and roses. I have heard stories from people where my jaw just dropped. I'm like, wow, I cannot believe that a human being could endure such atrocities. Some of you guys have inside of you something that is just too unthinkable. But I pray for those of you guys who are to recognize that our God is greater. Our God is greater. And just as God led Elijah through the drought, God is leading you through the drought of your life. But he knows what he is doing. Ephesians 3.24, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power which is at work within us. So I'm going to end with this. 
What can we learn from this? Do not look at the situation. Do not look uh, horizontally. Do not look at your problems. Look to God. The God that you read in Scripture, the great provider for the nation of Israel, He is your great provider. And He is your refuge and your strength. And you will see in your life the same God that led His people out of Egypt. The same God who actually parted the Red Sea, who fed the Israelites from manna from heaven, who spewed water from rocks, and who led his people through the desert by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This God you will see firsthand in your life working for you, fighting for you. And you will say amen to the statement that there is nothing too great for our God. Trust in him in every circumstance. Cling to him. As Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. Let us turn our eyes to the Lord. It may be harder for us, some of us to do, but trust in the God who created the universe. And this God is strong enough to guide you through any, any drought in your life. So we're going to sing the response song. And may we meditate on not just the goodness of Christ, of our God, but his power, his ability to do so, to carry us through any turmoil in our lives. And putting our full trust in him that he has our lives in the palm of his hands. And all things will turn out for good for those who love him.